0: Uh, this morning, I would like to begin with a parable of sorts. Uh, some of you have heard me uh, use this parable before, and if that's true, then I apologize. Uh, it, it has been a few years. Uh, but this is called The Ballad of Willard the Caterpillar. Willard the Caterpillar was no ordinary caterpillar. Willard the Caterpillar had a big ambition, and he loved adventure. He wanted to accomplish what no other caterpillars had ever accomplished. He wanted to be the first caterpillar to ever achieve flight. One night he shared his dream with his caterpillar friends, Jim and Nancy. He told of how ever since he was a little caterpillar, he dreamed of soaring through the air. Willard, said Nancy. I think you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. And if any caterpillar can learn how to fly, it would certainly be you. Right, Jim? Jim nodded obligingly. So Willard spent the next week training for his flight, eating lots of leaves so he could have energy and climbing lots of trees so he could be strong. Finally, the fateful day arrived. Dozens of Willard's friends and family gathered around the tallest tree in the forest to cheer him on. Uh, Willard strapped on his flight goggles and started climbing up the tree to the sound of applause. I hope he teaches me how to fly, said Sheila. When he reached the top, his heart pounded with excitement. He pictured himself gliding through the air and started his countdown. Three, two, one. Then, with a burst of enthusiasm, he leapt out from the branch. Willard immediately felt the onrushing of wind as the ground began to grow larger. I'm really doing it, he said. Those words, however, would be his last. That's better than my original ending. (laughs) Meredith wouldn't let me use that one. Willard the caterpillar did not understand what you and I know to be true. That caterpillars cannot fly. In order for a caterpillar to fly, it has to go through a transformation. It has to go into a chrysalis and reemerge as a butterfly. Uh, No amount of physical training will do. Well, our first two points this morning hope to make this abundantly clear for us. A Christian, sort of like a caterpillar, is someone who has gone through a radical transformation by the power of God's Spirit. A Christian has been born again, uh, made alive in Christ. A Christian has taken off the old self, if we're to use Pauline language here, and put on the new self. As we see, these last three chapters of Ephesians are replete with moral exhortations. But as we come to these exhortations, we always begin with what God has done for us already in Jesus Christ before moving on to the moral exhortations. These commands are how we respond to grace, not how we go about receiving it. And the person who attempts to follow these commands without the transformation of the Holy Spirit is doomed to the same futility as Willard. Gospel transformation, in other words, must precede gospel obedience so if you'll pick up with me in chapter 4 verse 17 now i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning to worship you, and we're excited to hear from you. Lord, we praise you for this opportunity to open your word together. I pray, God, that as I prepare to preach your word, uh, that you would speak through me, that you would glorify yourself in our midst. And God, give us hearts which desire to know your word, ears which are longing to hear your word, and spirits which are eager to obey your word. We ask all of this in the name of your incredibly loving son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Well, if one potential pitfall for the church with Willard in mind is to fall into a type of works righteousness and forget the grace of God, that's obedience without grace or Phariseeism. Uh, another pitfall we should avoid is pretending that God doesn't care how we live. That's grace without obedience. And oftentimes this is born by the church out of a desire to make Christianity more appealing. Uh, how is it that we can package the faith in a way in which the world will desire it? And so what we end up doing is we offer the world a cheap grace, in the words of Bonhoeffer, uh, a discipleship without cost gospel benefits without gospel demands the church waters down the gospel and ends up presenting a less appealing version of worldliness back to the world and we're surprised when that backfires but jesus and his apostles are perfectly clear those who belong to christ are called to obey christ not begrudgingly uh, not because we have to but with a spirit of gratitude in response to his grace. It's why Jesus, when he's talking to disciples, he says, those who love me will obey my commands. And here we see that Paul, after reminding us for three chapters of God's grace that he's called us out of the world and blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he tells us in chapter four, verse one, what? He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And that's the, the theme of the second half of Ephesians. In other words, we don't honor God by resembling the world, but in resembling God. And we don't win those who are of the world by resembling the world, but by contrasting with the world in matters of sin and holiness. And so as we begin our passage this morning, Paul is reminding us, he says, I say and bear witness in the Lord that you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. And actually, that's pretty funny when you stop to consider that he's writing to a primarily Gentile church. <laughs> it's like, come on, Paul, you can, you can think through that a little bit better. <clears throat> but Gentiles here, they're, they're a stand-in for the unconverted person, for those who live apart from God and his word. He's saying, look at the world around you. And at this point in history, it was... A pagan world full of idols, full of depravity. And he says, look at what you were called out of. You're no longer to live like that. That's the lifestyle which characterizes those who do not know God. Not those who have been adopted into his family. This is your old self, he'll say in verse 21. And he continues, so how then do the Gentiles walk? Well, he describes it in language very similar to the way that he described spiritual death in chapter two, verses one to three. Remember he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in the way you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the one at work and the sons of disobedience, obeying the passions of your flesh. So here he continues that same thought process in describing the natural state of man. he says, that they have futility of their minds, that their understanding is darkened, that they've been alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and because of their hardness of heart. Now, of course, this does not mean in any way that non-Christians are less intelligent than Christians. That's not what he's saying here. But it does mean that apart from God sin can make us believe some irrational ideas and to do some questionable things. It does mean that the mind which is still enslaved to sin cannot function in the ideal way which God designed it to function because it doesn't know God. Listen, our minds were designed for us to use them to know God and to love God. And if we don't know God and love him, then we're not using our minds according to design. So their hearts are hardened against him and against his righteousness. Listen, this is the reason that a brilliant scientist who makes it through years of medical school, studying the human body, can look at a man with long hair in a women's bathing suit, racing against a pool full of women, consistently dominating the field, consistently showing a competitive advantage he didn't have when he raced against men. And that doctor can proclaim that this man is actually a woman and that the playing field is perfectly even simply because he believes it's true. It's the reason that USA Today, a national newspaper, can publish on January 10th an article attempting to destigmatize pedophilia, arguing for greater sympathy that there's nothing wrong with being attracted to children, only acting on it. You see, spiritual death. Life alienated from God is a life of ignorance and of moral decay. When we as humans deny our creator, the one who designed us to know and love him, then it doesn't matter how intelligent we are, we will believe foolish things and behave foolishly. And so he draws out the implications here in verse 19. Being alienated from God means we are ignorant of him and darkened in our understanding. And then the spiritually dead person, he says, becomes callous toward God. He or she cannot feel the prick of a conscience. They've lost all moral sensitivity toward God. Uh, This person not only pursues sin, but celebrates sin, takes pride in sin, calls evil good and good evil. Evil. Uh, the callous person then removes any moral restraints as the text continues. This, this person elevates herself as supreme. I will do exactly as I desire. And so the ESV translate that the Gentiles have, been, g- have given themselves over to sensuality. Uh, now certainly sensuality is included there, but in translation that word probably refers more broadly to a general licentiousness. Uh, a selfish inclination to do as you please, unrestrained by any sort of moral boundary. And of course you know the, the entire reason that we have rules and laws is because when every person does what is right in their own eyes, i.e. the book of Judges, uh, things get bad really quick and you have anarchy and incredible suffering. So the Gentiles are not only removing restraints, he says, but they are eager. He says they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. No one is forcing it on them. They are doing exactly what they desire. Now, if you spend much time talking to anyone, you've probably heard something to the effect that uh, the Bible is outdated. That it represents a picture of morality and particularly of sexuality which is archaic and out of touch with the modern day. That we have progressed beyond such a simplistic understanding of right and wrong. Uh, You see, every generation likes to believe that we have been innovative in the way that we push our licentiousness. That we've been innovative in the way that we have normalized what was once taboo. And the way that we've not only broken the rules but removed the rules entirely. But all this reveals is a profound ignorance, not only of God, but also an ignorance of history. There's nothing new under the sun. And there's nothing happening today which was not also happening in the first century pagan Roman Empire, the context in which this was written. And the sinfulness of human nature has remained unchanged in the two millennia since then. Now, uh, it can be easy for us who are Christians to look at the world and at the utter ugliness of sin. And we can be tempted toward condescension, toward frustration, even hate toward the world. When we see the damage and the suffering that is brought about by this rampant self-worship and the absolute rejection of God. But you see, Paul here, in illustrating for us the sinfulness of sin, wants to remind us Such were some of you, as he says in 1 Corinthians 6. This was our state before Christ. Uh, This is the natural state of humanity. The world is going to act worldly because they want to. And they will never not want to until they come to know Christ. Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, the only difference between you and anyone in the world is God's sovereign grace in election. The fact that he chose because of his good pleasure to make you alive in christ when jesus died on the cross he not only removed the guilt of your sin but he broke the irrational power which sin held over you he revealed to you the only true source of satisfaction and real pleasure that you could ever experience god himself so yes of course we should hate sin but we should have compassion on those who are still in spiritual darkness. Well, maybe this morning you feel like what Paul is describing is where you currently are. Maybe you've been searching for meaning and searching for satisfaction. You've you've sought it in every way which the world has promised to give it to you, and yet you're still feeling empty and unsatisfied. Maybe you feel trapped in your sin like there's no way out. Maybe you feel guilty and wonder if God could ever love someone like you. Well, the good news of the gospel is that you are exactly the kind of person who Jesus came to save. Jesus, because you're a sinner, and so is every single person in this room, Uh, Jesus can forgive you. He can rescue you from this futility of mind And from the futility that comes from pursuing sin and hoping that it will bring you joy. From the power that sin holds over you. And Jesus can make you a child of God most high. But he calls you to stop looking for satisfaction in anything other than himself. To turn away from your sins and to trust in him completely. And so we've seen the old self, which Paul describes for us. In verses 20 to 24, he's going to call us, based on our new status as children of God, to put on the new self. Look at, let's read 20 to 24 together. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So after describing the awfulness of spiritual death and verses 20 to 24 Paul is reminding us that while that may be the way we once lived and that is the way the world currently lives it's not the way that a Christian is called to live rather he's called to pursue holiness now I understand many people recoil at the word holiness When we hear holiness, oftentimes we think of the religious hypocrite, the incredibly judgmental, self-righteous person. I want you to love holiness, because holiness is an attribute of God. God is holy. According to the hymn, God is holy, holy, holy. My daughter Aria will be happy to sing it for you. He's set apart. He's morally perfect. And so the question becomes for us as the church, how is it that we can pursue holiness without becoming holier than thou? And how can we pursue righteousness without becoming self-righteous and hypocritical? And the answer is that we pursue Christ. You see, God calls us to a different kind of life based on who Christ is and what Christ has already accomplished for us. By his spirit, we Christians actually have the privilege and the ability to pursue holiness as we follow Jesus Christ. Uh, If you remember, there was never anyone holier than Jesus. He never sinned, and yet he was also called what? a friend of sinners. He never lived in a worldly way, and yet he came to earth because he loved the world. He never sacrificed his holiness or his righteousness for the sake of fitting in or finding an easier path, gaining followers. And yet no one has ever had a greater impact on history than Jesus. By his death, he paid the penalty for our sins. Through his spirit, he has broken the power of sin over us. And by his life, we have an example of what it looks like to walk in holiness. And so Paul says, if you have learned Christ, he says you should take off the old self and put on the new self. This is the same kind of language that they would use for changing clothes, taking off a jacket, putting on a new jacket. And so he tells us if you're in Christ, it's time to take off the old way of living, the way that belonged to your former self before you learned Christ. And now you are to put on the new self. And here's what's neat that we see in verses 23 and 24. Uh, If the old self has a mind which is subjected to futility... The new mind is being renewed in God's spirit. It's becoming more like Christ. The old self resembles Adam and sin, the life of those far from God. The new self, he says, is created in the likeness of God. It's a new creation. It's like God in that it was created to live in true righteousness and true holiness. All right, so there's the theory. Take off the old, put on the new. Well, what does that look like in practice? Well, the good news is Paul's going to illustrate that for us in verses 25 to 32. So let's, let's look at that. What does it look like to walk in holiness or to put on the new self? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. As we look at these final commands, I want you to remember Willard. These commands cannot be divorced from what God has already done for us and what he has done to us. These commands are presupposing that you are a Christian, that you have received the Holy Spirit, that you are attempting to fly because you've gone through the metamorphosis and now have wings. And so the motivation for following these commands is because we love God. We're thankful to Him. We're, we're, we desire to honor Him. The motivation cannot be that we're attempting to atone for our past transgressions. Or to try and merit anything from God. Because then we're bound to futility. Okay, so... That disclaimer once more provided, let's look at this new life which God calls us to live as Christians. You'll notice in each of these examples, and Paul gives a number of them, uh, Paul begins by uh, labeling the practice of the old self. The first one he gives is is lying or falsehood. So that's the old self. And then he immediately shows us what it looks like to put on the new self. Uh, In each case, the behavior of the old self not only dishonors God, but it hurts the person and it hurts those around the person. On the contrary, the practices of the new self honor God, and they have a positive impact on those around us. So let's look at verse 25. He says, the old self is characterized by falsehood, by lying. Lying is not a behavior becoming of the child of God. And so he says, the new self replaces lying with the opposite of lying. I'm going to make you work this morning. What is the opposite of lying? Truth telling. The the verb in Greek is literally truthing, which is kind of fun. Speaking the truth. Why, Paul says? Well, he he reminds us of what he taught us in chapters two and three. Because we are members of the one body of Christ. One commentator I wrote uh, put it very dramatically. And yet, he's also really right, so I had to copy it. He says this. He says, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. A lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. You see, you cannot lie to a brother or a sister without also hurting yourself and hurting the entire body because there's only one body. And so God calls us to reject falsehood and speak the truth even when it's inconvenient. Next up, verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Now I've mentioned this before that there is such a thing as righteous anger. You can be angry at your sin. Uh, You can be angry at injustice. You can even be angry about the sins of others and how they hurt others. But if you're honest with yourself, I think you would probably admit that your anger is more often than not of the unrighteous variety. You had a goal or a desire that was blocked, you didn't get your way, and now you're mad about it. So when you're angry, I want you to ask yourself this, is my anger motivated by a zeal for God's glory or a zeal for my own glory? Paul here, however, isn't going to distinguish between righteous or unrighteous anger. He's putting them both there. He simply says this, that your anger is not an excuse for sin. Why would Paul have to connect the two of those? I think you know that. Where anger is present, sin is close by. Uh, When we're angry, we are primed to do something we will regret what did god say to cain he said sin is crouching at your door you need to master it and yet cain out of envy and anger went and murdered his own brother abel and so paul reminds us that anger is a dangerous thing don't let it become sin how how do we not let it become sin he goes on don't let the sun go down on your anger In other words, he's telling us that before we go to bed at night, we need to do everything in our power to resolve the issues which are causing our anger. He's saying, don't go to bed angry or you will be giving the devil an opportunity. Because you see, when you go to bed angry, you might not wake up angry, but your anger will have transformed into bitterness. And it will poison all of your relationships. You will be bitter at whoever offended you, and you will be bitter toward yourself for not having the courage to resolve the issue. Paul's saying here when you're angry or when you're bitter, to use a southern phrase, the devil will play you like a fiddle. He can wreak all sorts of havoc in the church, and in your family. Now Paul doesn't live in a bubble. Paul is very realistic. He assumes that within the life of the church we are going to sin and we're going to offend one another. When, not if, this happens, remember this, that your anger is not proof that you're in the right. I'll say that again. Remember that your anger is not proof that you are in the right. You can be angry and still be completely wrong. Nevertheless, you're still called to go to whoever has offended you and work things out. It may be that that person needs the opportunity to repent, and you've now given it to them. It may be, after talking to this person, that you realize you need the opportunity To repent. Either way, whether someone repents or not, we are called to try to work things out and to forgive one another. That means we're no longer seeking to get even. Now, before we move on, I just want to briefly apply this to married couples because there's one person in your life who you are engaged with the most. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but one thing is for sure in marriage, your spouse is going to offend you. And you are going to offend your spouse. Resolve today, couples, that you will no longer let the sun go down on your anger. You will not go to sleep without working to resolve your problems. It may be that you need to set a time and a date when you're no longer physically and emotionally exhausted in which you can discuss these things, but you need to resolve not to go to bed with conflict. This morning, it may be that there is already much bitterness in your marriage. It may be that you and your spouse have let the sun go down on your anger one too many times already. If that's the case, it's more common than you might think. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Come and talk to me about options. I'm not going to shame you. But there's no reason that two Christians who have the Spirit of God living within them cannot work to come together and to fix their marriage. All right, that's enough about angry. Anger. You're going to be angry with me if I continue. Let's continue looking at old and new. Verse 28. So if the old way is the way of thievery, uh, if the old self was a thief, then the new self should replace his theft with the opposite. What is the opposite? Good, hard work. You see, work is something which God does. And actually, work is something he gave for us to do before the fall. And while we can certainly make an idol of our work, work itself is a good thing. The biblical principle is this, that anyone who can work should work. Anyone who can contribute should contribute. Within the church, there should never be an able-bodied man who chooses not to work. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 that anyone who does not work does not eat, which means that if there is an able-bodied person who chooses not to work, they are not to receive benevolence or mercy from the church. Now, obviously, I'm including stay-at-home moms in this, okay? I watch the kids by myself for three hours, and I am wiped out, all right? <laughs> it's, it's hard work. So he says the first principle is that the thief should now work. The second principle is that he says it should be honorable work. Uh, I had a buddy in high school who worked very hard, and he worked hard to make lots of money. But I don't think any of us would say that selling drugs was an honorable profession. Certainly his parole officer didn't think so. So Paul says that within the church we are called to honorable work. Why? He says it's an implication of the gospel. You see, the thief who then trusts in Christ ceases to be a burden on other people, ceases to have a negative impact on those around him. But now he works hard not to store up wealth for himself, but what does the text say? So he can be a blessing to other people. So he can bless people who are actually vulnerable and needy. You see, when Christ gets a hold of someone, he takes a burden and he turns them into a blessing. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, at your workplace, you should be known as a hard worker and as a generous person. And when you are, you testify to the truth of who jesus christ is next up verse 29 he says stop it with the filthy talk look we all live in the world we all know what corrupt language is people use it with me all the time crude corrupt filthy language and it's really funny when they find out that i'm a pastor (laughs) half the time they get really embarrassed and start apologizing and then half the time, they just don't care. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so Paul is getting at the fact that your tongue is a powerful tool. Tool. Remember the imagery that James gives us? He says your tongue is like the rudder, this tiny little piece of the ship. This tiny little piece directs the entire course of the ship. Your tongue is a powerful tool, Paul's telling us. And if you're in Christ, then you shouldn't use your tongue like we used to before we were in Christ. That means gossip, slander, crude jokes, no more. He says instead, use your tongue positively. Use it to build up one another. Uh, Tim Keller talks about catching one another doing good. Use your tongue to encourage the good things. Encourage people as you see them using your gifts. You know, I saw Greg and David slowly chiseling away with ice picks at the inch and a half thick ice we had so people could walk to church without completely eating it. Uh, last week I saw Steve during and after a blizzard shoveling snow here at the church. Like These are, these are opportunities to encourage one another as you see it. And I know that many of you are serving in many ways. Paul says, when you encourage people, when you use your tongue to build up, it's amazing. He says, you will be giving them grace. Giving grace to your hearers." I didn't know I could give grace. It's kind of a cool idea. Now, let's put it all together. Just consider the last four examples and consider the kind of people that Paul is saying the church is comprised of. Verse 25, liars. Verse 26, hotheads. Verse 28, thieves. Verse 29, sailors. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In other words, the church is comprised entirely and without exception of sinners and the beautiful thing about the gospel is that jesus takes us sinners he not only forgives our sins but he changes us before when we were walking like the gentiles we were a force for evil and jesus makes us a tangible demonstrable force for good This is one of the strongest arguments for Christianity that I can think of, the way that Jesus changes people. All right, well, he says, he says, do not grieve the spirit of God. Did you realize you could do that? Have you ever disappointed someone that you really loved? Did it feel good? No, of course not. It feels awful. Paul's saying we grieve the spirit of God when we who are in Christ choose to live like the world. When we take off our new self and put back on our old self. When we who know better consciously choose to give in to temptation and to sin. We grieve the very spirit of God whose job it is to To seal us, he says, for that day of redemption. To help us persevere in faith to the end. To ensure that we will enter the kingdom of God. The spirit whose power actually makes it possible for us to say no to sin. When we choose to sin anyway, we grieve God himself. We break God's heart. Brothers and sisters, let's not take our sins lightly. Because God doesn't remember what it cost for God to forgive you. As we prepare to take communion, remember Christ on the cross bearing the wrath of God for your sin so that on that day of redemption, you could be forgiven. You could be declared righteous in Christ, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ did for you. When we choose to sin, we are mocking his sacrifice. All right. well, the last two verses, verses 31 and 32, Paul's just going to wrap everything up. He's going to recap everything. Let's look at verse 31. He says, bitterness, wrath, rage, clamor, slander, and all malice. He says, put it in your metaphorical box, lock the box, throw it into the ocean, throw it into the key. That is who you were. It is not who you are in Christ Jesus. Put it away. And our final verse, verse 32, is a recognition that until we go to be with Christ, we will still struggle with our flesh. Let's read it one more time. He says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, as humans, we will inevitably mess up and sin against each other. But when we put away wrath and rage and slander and malice, and instead when we're kind and compassionate to one another, we can overcome the sins of the body because we don't perpetuate the cycle of sin and escalation of sin. We don't let the sun go down on our anger. We actually deal with the issue and we always, no matter what, forgive one another. We don't try to get even. Why? Do you remember the parable of the king and his servant? And the servant's servant? I forget what it's actually called. A guy owes a debt of like 10,000 denarii to the king. He begs the king for more time. The king wipes his slate clean. He says, don't worry about it. I've eaten your debt. I've forgiven this enormous debt you have. The servant goes home. He finds another servant who owes him 20 bucks. Says, just give me a day, I'll Venmo it to you. He grabs him by the throat, he says, no, you're going to prison. And he tosses him in prison. Well, that's what it's like when we who have been forgiven of an eternal debt by God in Jesus Christ, when we choose to withhold forgiveness from those around us. And that's why Paul says, forgive one another, why? As God in Christ Jesus forgave you. You're called to forgive because you've been forgiven. Well, there you have it. Christians are called to live differently. And by God's spirit, we have been equipped to live differently. The church is imperfect. And this church is definitely imperfect. Because you're in it. And because I'm in it. But I don't know of any other institution in which people can actually speak truth to one another, forgive one another, and become closer because of it. If we'll just take God at his word, it's remarkable the kind of community that God will build right here in Medfield. Listen, the world longs for real and authentic community. The world is tired of facades and lies and self-adulation. When we choose to put on the new self, to live as Christ has called us to live, we're showing the world what the love of God is like and what the community of heaven will be like. And that is a compelling argument.